coming up. So, have you stopped screaming in the middle of the night yet? President-elect Donald Trump. No, me neither. Hello, Paul Osborne here. You remember that episode of Dallas where Bobby Ewing emerged from the shower and it turned out that the entire last season had just been a terrible dream? This is nothing like that. CNN can report that Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to concede the race. She has called Donald Trump to say that she will not be president and uh, I'm not sure the exact words, but probably to congratulate uh, President-elect Donald Trump. Yes, President-elect Don... God. Let me try that again. President-elect Donald Trump. Yeah, that, that really isn't getting any easier to say. Well, after the unexpected appointment of a sexually aggressive and perpetually angry carrot as the most powerful man on earth, how are we all doing? How are you doing? Look, it's been a week and we're all still here. That's something. Now, admittedly, Donald Trump doesn't actually have any power yet. January could turn out to be very interesting. But he has already been to the Oval Office, probably working out how much of it to cover in gold once he moves in, and just how big a Trump sign to put on the roof. I want to uh, emphasize to you, uh, Mr. President-elect, that uh, we now are going to... want to do everything we can to help you succeed, because if you succeed, then the country succeeds. Barack Obama, a man who, let's be honest, doesn't struggle with oratory, really struggling to find anything at all nice to say to Donald Trump. And in return, what did the tax-dodging day-glow alleged sex pest have to say? This was a meeting that was going to last for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and uh, we were just going to get to know each other. We had never met each other. Uh, I have great respect Uh, The meeting lasted for almost an hour and a half, and it could have, as far as I'm concerned, it could could have gone on for a lot longer. Now, let's all remember this. Donald Trump's first time in the Oval Office, and he said two things that weren't, strictly speaking, true. Number one, the meeting was meant to last for 10 minutes, but bowled over by the Trump charisma, Obama just lingered for longer. Seriously, the president does not greet the president-elect for 10 minutes. It was supposed to last an hour. Number two, Donald Trump does not have great respect for Barack Obama. Donald Trump has spent the last few years peddling racist myths about him, only to then claim that it was actually all that awful Hillary Clinton's fault. And in fact, he was helping Obama out by tidying the whole thing up, even though he had repeatedly said that Obama might not really be an American and maybe some kind of stealth Muslim. You can understand why some people are a little annoyed. Though it's worth pointing out again that if the result had gone the other way and this had been Trump protesters on the streets, they would have been roundly condemned for refusing to accept the results of a democratic election. Well, throughout this endless election season, we've been getting updates from Steve Mort, who's followed every turn of the race from Florida, a state that once again turned out to be very, very important. So a little over a week on, has he recovered yet from the surprise of election night? Have I recovered mentally from being wrong for about two years? Well, maybe you want to ask me that in about four years at the end uh, of the first term of the Trump administration. I'll let you know then. 
Okay, well, how did he pull this off? And, and, and more importantly, how did he pull this off without anyone in the media? And to be honest, almost nobody on his own side realising what was about to happen. Well, he pulled it off basically by knowing something that we all didn't know. And by when I say we all, I mean um, the media, uh, the political establishment, the pollsters, the analysts, you name it, everybody except Donald Trump. Uh, and that was that Donald Trump had sufficient strength in the Midwestern Rust Belt states to pull this off. And those states were what we were referring to during the campaign as the Blue Firewall, the states that Hillary Clinton was highly likely to win, uh, you know, and when the electoral votes were tallied up from those states, plus the erstwhile Democratic states such as New York and California, she would easily be over the finish line at 270 electoral votes. Now, we saw how that turned out. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio and Iowa all went for Donald Trump. And what Trump did was he managed to identify a core group of voters that normally stay away from the polls. Uh, those are those white working class, what we call disaffected voters, people that feel they've been left left behind in, in modern America. Very similar to what we talked about a lot with Brexit. Uh, and uh, he managed to motivate them to get to the polls. And he also managed to get union workers who normally turn out for the Democrats to the polls, uh, that sort of combination, uh, plus not doing as badly uh, with Hispanics as Mitt Romney did, uh, plus uh, a lower African-American turnout than in 2012, uh, plus <laughs> Hillary Clinton just not being as popular as Barack Obama, uh, all of that led to uh, Donald Trump's uh, surprise win. I think it came as a surprise to most of us. The people who voted for Trump thought he was going to build that wall, repeal Obamacare and lock up Hillary Clinton. And he's already watering down those plans. I mean, is it possible that the whole thing was just a PR campaign and he's actually about to govern like a moderate Republican? Or am I just being really stupid? No, I don't think you're being stupid. Um, I think a lot of people uh, hope... Uh, that Donald Trump governs more like a moderate Republican. Certainly his stances on issues in the past put him more in the uh, you know, moderate Republican camp. Uh, he is a businessman, he's a showman, he's a, a salesman. Uh, and PR, of course, is one of his fortes in that respect and selling himself. Uh, but if you look at the words and deeds since his victory... I think you'll see a, a patchwork uh, of, of things that he might do, some which mesh with what he puts out there on the campaign trail, some which don't. Uh, in terms of the wall, uh, they've walked that back a little bit. Uh, you'll probably see uh, a wall, um, but it's not going to be anywhere near the scale uh, that was talked about on the campaign trail. Uh, it's going to probably uh, encompass about a third of the border, be sort of a wall and a fence. Uh, and then the rest of it sort of staffed virtually uh, with drones, uh, sensors, that kind of thing. You know, much like is being done now. On Obamacare, uh, I think you're probably likely to see action on that uh, in the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Um, whether it's Trump's priority or not, congressional Republicans are not going to allow it uh, not to happen. Uh, they've been trying to repeal Obamacare pretty much since the law was put into place. Uh, and you're going to see some movement on that. I'm pretty sure about it. 
on locking up Hillary Clinton, uh, that is probably one of the least likely things to happen. Uh, it was something, a mantra, if you like, that we heard throughout the campaign. And many people were chanting it at his rallies, you know, lock her up. But then Donald Trump was very complimentary of Hillary Clinton uh, during his uh, victory speech on election night and subsequently. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much of a will uh, on the part of the candidate himself uh, to throw Hillary Clinton in jail. He is not able to instruct his attorney general uh, to uh, prosecute someone. He's not able to instruct uh, the FBI to launch an investigation. He's not able to instruct the judiciary on how to rule. So Donald Trump won't have uh, the power to throw Hillary Clinton in jail, uh, regardless of whether he would like to or not. Uh, it doesn't seem at the moment that he would like to. He's already appointed some, let's call them interesting people. The most interesting of all is this chap, Stephen Bannon. Now, what does that say about the kind of advice that President Trump will be getting? Yes, he has appointed some very interesting people. Uh, Steve Bannon, you mentioned, uh, one of the most uh, controversial. Uh, he is, of course, formerly of uh, formerly the uh, the head of Breitbart News, uh, sort of an organ, if you like, of the alt right. Uh, that's this sort of loose uh, affiliation of sort of white nationalists, bit of white supremacy thrown in there as well, uh, website. Uh, and Bannon has also reportedly, you know, had a few problems in the past, uh, you know, in his personal past, you know, with Jewish people. Um, his uh, publication has been very, how should we say, um, tough on women and minorities. And his elevation to chief strategist in the Trump administration uh, has really raised some eyebrows and some fears in uh, some communities. Uh, you know, that coupled with, um, you know, some high profile uh, Trump allies sort of talking about, you know, internment camps for Muslims or Muslim registries, that kind of thing has, has, has sparked, uh, you know, a great deal of concern about, you know, who Donald Trump is putting in you know, in positions of power. One report this week of that meeting between Trump and Obama said that Trump was surprised by the workload, by how much the president had to do. And he didn't even realise that he had to move into the White House. He does seem to have quite a lot to learn. Well, yes, um, you know, we've never had a formal readout of that meeting. And, um, you know, it would be unsurprising if Donald Trump were not surprised. Donald Trump, I'm pretty sure is surprised uh, about having to appoint 4,000 people in the space of a couple of months to the federal government. Uh, that would be surprising to a lot of people who were political novices like Donald Trump. But some of Donald Trump's actions uh, have spoken a little bit more to his surprise or lack of familiarity with the way things are done. Uh, one of those things is uh, his uh, attempts to appoint or reports that he's attempting to appoint uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, to a former White House position. Uh, talks about uh, maybe his daughter, Ivanka, who's married to Jared Kushner, being uh, in the White House in some role, uh, have raised eyebrows because that would, on the face of it, probably violate U.S. anti-nepotism laws that were put into place uh, after the Kennedy uh, administration when JFK um, uh, appointed his uh, brother uh, Robert uh, to the uh, to the government. Uh, so 
Donald Trump seems to be grappling with some of those issues. Uh, there's also the issue of uh, conflict of interest in that uh, he uh, apparently wants his daughter Ivanka to uh, run the Trump organization in what's called, quote unquote, a blind trust, you know, ostensibly so that Donald Trump doesn't know what's going on in the organization. So there isn't uh, a conflict of interest. But then uh, just this week, we saw uh, the same Ivanka Trump. Uh, sitting in on a meeting between um, Donald Trump and the uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. On a couple of occasions, uh, Donald Trump has travelled without the protective pool uh, of journalists that traditionally travel with the president and the president-elect. Is that an indication of how he is going to treat uh, reporters and journalists in a Trump White House? Probably You know, our lives are not going to be easier by any stretch of the imagination. But I think we would all agree that as journalists, we uh, have a much, much stronger onus on us this time around uh, to do our due diligence uh, and report on the on the on the White House, probably uh, in a more concerted way than than ever before. Steve Malt there in the United States. Mr Trump spoke to Theresa May by phone, though British pride was dented by only being 10th on that list, behind Australia and Ireland and probably some place that delivers tacos. And that phone call really doesn't mean very much when you compare it to the gilt-edged snapshot that Nigel Farage was able to tweet. Yes, Mr Brexit was in town to slither up to Trump. It is possible that Trump thinks that Farage genuinely is a British government official, or the king of Brexitshire or a hobbit or something. It all led to calls for Mrs May to give Farage an official job, chief sucker-up to the president or something, a call she has rather sensibly rejected, though this week she did nothing to deny the reports that Mr Farage could be on his way to the House of Lords, something we predicted a couple of weeks ago. But the government is desperate to cosy up to Trump. Boris Johnson more or less grabbed a loud hailer to make sure that everybody knew that he was staying away from a crisis meeting of EU ministers. Just the kind of thing you need to do if you want that new president to strike a friendly trade deal with post-Brexit Britain. The Prime Minister might want to tread carefully, though. The last British leader to climb in the pocket of a US president was Tony Blair. That really didn't end terribly well. Well, we'll return to the terror of the Trump presidency in just a moment and we'll meet once again a man whose response to crisis is to seek solace in music. But first, let's briefly return to Westminster because it's not all been hand-wringing about America's grand season finale. Here's a brief wrap-up of the other news you may have missed through your bitter tears. It's time for a Brexit update. Well, this week has all been about the big secret Brexit plan, the one that the government definitely has, but definitely isn't going to tell you about because, well, Johnny Foreigner might be listening. A report suggested that, in fact, ministers are at least six months away from having any kind of plan and could easily need an extra 30,000 civil servants just to get started. Now, the government challenged the claims in that report, but once again, the Prime Minister refused this week to say what her strategy actually is. One poll suggested that 48% of voters think that Mrs May is doing a bad job of handling our departure from the EU. Meanwhile, 37% approve, though you do wonder how either group could be so sure given the lack of information. Elsewhere in Brexit land, Boris Johnson warned Italy's economic development minister if he didn't back a favourable deal for Britain, he could lose out on Prosecco exports. British diplomacy at its vaguely patronising best. 
Next week, though, it could all get a lot more serious. The Chancellor is due to deliver his autumn statement, and we think Philip Hammond will warn of a £100 million black hole in the nation's finances because of the Brexit vote. Still, I'm sure it'll all be fine. We can easily make that up by selling fine English sparkling wine to ourselves in vast, liver-destroying quantities. One other thing we should briefly mention, uh, the word of the year, according to Oxford Dictionaries, is post-truth. This is defined as denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. I can't possibly imagine what they have in mind. Now, do you remember this? Thank you very much. Right. When David Cameron was caught humming his way back into Downing Street over the summer, composer Thomas Hewitt-Jones was inspired to turn it into a musical lament. And when he woke up to the news that Donald Trump had been elected the leader of the free world, there was only one thing to do. This time, he turned the American national anthem into something far more brooding and sombre. He called it the Hate Strangled Banner, something that didn't go down too well with some people residing in the land of the free. I was very surprised um, by the result, and I really was quite struck by the fact that the hate-filled rhetoric of Trump actually won over so many people. I wanted to really share the emotions that many people are definitely experiencing right now. I feel, without a doubt, there are a great many people in the world who, like me, are kind of feeling very lost um, in terms of where the world is going. America has this wonderful, unifying, positive national anthem, which describes the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I just felt that the clash of ideologies and differences of opinion in the run-up to the presidential election um, actually was a very negative kind of feeling towards America and and possibly losing freedom and all these different prejudices that were um, shown by by Trump in the and, and Trump supporters actually in in, in the run up to the to the vote. kind of the possibly Orwellian situation we're, we're going into and, and actually make people think about it. And, and I didn't really write it as a political statement, actually, um, despite the title, which people have responded very aggressively to, I have to be honest. But I think as, as, as an artist, as a composer, as a musician, I think, you know, you, you want to ask questions and um, any reaction that, that makes people think is, is, I think, a very positive one. It's hopefully thought-provoking. I guess it's probably an elegy for a world that I thought we knew and we're not sure quite where, where we're going now. That reaction you talk about from some of Donald Trump's supporters, I suppose, in a way, gives you a gives you an indication of how this campaign has been for lots of people in America. When I put it online, I instantly had a very negative reaction by a lot of Trump supporters, I noticed. We suddenly received all this kind of hate mail from Trump supporters, I guess, who who kind of, who I think read the title of the track and actually took it as a kind of having it in for 
for Trump and his ideology. And that wasn't really what, what was in mind. I think it was kind of capturing this really sort of un, unrested feel at the moment. I guess fueled by hate in America and, and beyond. And um, I just wanted to kind of bring it back to a very human level. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, um, an emotion which we all feel is, is a unification, is something that we can all recognise and whatever you want to read into it, um, I guess we all have our own opinions and I think I think at the end of the day we've got to spread a bit of love. That sort of negative reaction that you were getting from some of the supporters, would that put you off doing something similar in the future? Absolutely not. It was very funny, you know, because we got all these hate messages um, on Twitter and, and in various ways and, and it transpired that the people concerned hadn't actually listened to the track They'd just seen a post and they reacted emotionally to that post in a very superficial way. And it kind of, for me, almost symbolised the kind of situation we're in that people need to really think deeply and make decisions in a long-lasting way rather than just react, not necessarily bigoted, but in a very instant way and live in a very kind of scared world. I think there's no point. I think we, we know we need to all consider the big issues and think very deeply about where we're going. Thomas Hewitt-Jones, who has also recorded a Christmas album, which is uh, somewhat more festive. You can find out about that and him at his website, which is thomashewittjones.com. Well, that is where we will leave it for now. My thanks to Thomas and also to Steve Mort in the United States. Thanks to you too for listening. Do get in touch on Twitter at Paul Osborne. But for now, goodbye and don't have nightmares. Yeah.